Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You're probably familiar with the images, the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but what's the theology behind it? Hear how these devotions to love are especially needed now. Then, Bishop has a rousing call to the graduating class of 2020, encouraging them to always be ready to explain and defend the Catholic faith, but in a way that's gentle and reverent. The show ends with Bishop answering listeners' submitted questions on how bishops are chosen, whether he prefers fishing or hunting, and more. To submit your question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of Truth and Charity. You're welcome, Kyle. We're going to talk a little bit about the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. These two hearts we see a lot in images around our churches, maybe in our homes. I'm kind of curious to learn more. Uh, we've also got a lot of questions that we haven't gotten to, but could we start in prayer? Yeah, last week we did the act of faith, so I thought we could do the act of hope today. Uh, where do these come from, act of faith and act of hope? They're just traditional prayer. prayers. Okay. They go back a long time. I don't know their origins, though. Is there more of these? Is there a whole... Act of charity. Okay. Which we could do next week. Sure. Or Sounds the act good. of love, yeah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Lord God, I hope by your grace for the pardon of all my sins and after life here to gain eternal happiness because you have promised it, who are infinitely powerful, faithful, kind, and merciful. In this hope, I intend to live and die. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Did you, you didn't learn the act of faith, act of hope, and act of love when you were in I don't think so. Catholic school? We we had that. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if uh, if we st- they're still teaching those prayers in our schools and religious education programs. Well, we could definitely uh, bring them back. Yeah, yeah, they're very beautiful. So, Sacred Heart of Jesus. We have these feasts are back to back. So this coming Friday, June nineteenth, will be the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Saturday, June twentieth, will be the Memorial of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So maybe start with the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Where does this come from? Well, the feast, you know, it's a solemnity. Uh, You know, it's such a beautiful time of year. You know, at the end of the Easter season, we, you know, Easter season ends with Pentecost Sunday. And then the Sunday after Pentecost is is the solemnity of the Holy Trinity. Uh Then after the Sunday after Holy Trinity is Corpus Christi which we just celebrated. And then the Friday after Corpus Christi is always the solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So the the dates change each year because all this comes from the date of Easter, which changes. Right. You know, with right. Pentecost being 40, <laughs> uh, 50 days after Easter, et cetera. So, but usually you'll find that it lands in the month of June. Uh-huh. And actually June is the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. When someone asks me, where did this originate, this devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus? I say it originates in the Bible because hmm. really what is the Sacred Heart of Jesus? It's a devotion to the love of God revealed in the heart of Jesus. Uh-huh. And so when we read the scriptures, actually, you know, there's a lot, I don't know how many times, hundreds of times that the, the word heart appears in the Bible. Really? Uh, and, and heart is really referring to the interior of the person, the essence of the person. I mean, even now, you say, oh, I love you with all my heart. Hmm. You're talking about more than the physical heart. You're right. talking about your person. 
even if you say, let's get to the heart of the matter. Right. Okay, we're getting to the center. So we're talking about the center of a person. You know, you say to someone, you know, oh, you broke my heart. Mm-hmm. So really, the heart is the the source, the wellspring of our of our emotional lives, the center of of love. It's the interior life of the person, and therefore, when we talk about the heart of God or the heart of Jesus, we're talking about His person. We're talking about His divine love. So therefore. The whole image of the heart is scriptural. Now, the devotion per se in a more explicit form really came in the second millennium. But even when you read the fathers of the church, there's references to the heart of Christ. Of course, one of the big scripture references is is how his heart was pierced with a sword Mm -hmm. when he hung on the cross after he died Mm -hmm. and blood and water poured forth. And that's the beginning of the the new creation. I would say it was more in the 11th and 12th century when we saw started seeing this devotion to the heart of Jesus. Actually, it, it flowed from a devotion to the humanity of Jesus and to his wounds, the wounds of his passion, all five wounds. So that was a devotion for a few centuries that became very prominent in the Middle Ages, devotion to the wounds. And of course, one of the five wounds was is the wound in Jesus' heart that was pierced. And it symbolized, really, the wound of love. So there, in monasteries, Benedictine monasteries, Cistercian monasteries at that time, we have this, what I'd call a general devotion to the Sacred Heart. St. Gertrude, for example, she had uh, devotion. But the the climax, so to speak, of what we know as the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus was St. Margaret Mary, who lived in the 17th century. She was a cloistered nun of the Order of the Visitation. And she had personal revelation, a series of visions of Jesus while she was praying before the Blessed Sacrament. And she had this, she saw his heart his his heart, his sacred heart. She wrote, Jesus disclosed to me the marvels of his love and the inexplicable secrets of his sacred heart. So Christ emphasized to her his love and his woundedness caused by people's indifference hmm. to his love. So I, I would always say, you know, when people say, oh, all this is a devotion that came from from uh, St. Margaret Mary, I always say, no, it's a devotion that comes from Scripture. Mm -hmm. It just reached this expression with St. Margaret Mary. Would you say she popularized it or she kind of clarified some of these teachings? Yeah, and and also, you know, she actually saw in in these private appearances Jesus holding out his heart. Hmm. So... I think that's where it became much more popular then. Yeah. I think it's it's more than a devotion. You know, when we think about the Sacred Heart, I mean, it's not just like one of many devotions hmm. because we're talking about adoration of God in his very being as love, okay? This is an image of God's love, 
that's revealed in the pierced heart of his son. It symbolizes the love that conquers sin and death, transcends death. It's the symbol of the one who loved us to the end. It gets to the very core of our faith. It's only natural that the love of God became represented by a heart, the heart of his son, because love has always been associated with the heart. Mm -hmm. And it was in Jesus that God revealed his infinite love for us. And then the church was born from the pierced heart of Christ on the cross. Just like Eve was born from the side of Adam, mm-hmm. the church was born from the side of Jesus. That's the new creation. Really, the bride from the heart of the bridegroom. When the soldier thrust his lance into Jesus' side, immediately blood and, and uh, water flowed out. The church was born from the pierced side of Christ, from his sacred heart. So with this devotion, as I said, it's more than devotion, we contemplate the pierced heart of our Savior. We contemplate his incredible love for us. We reflect on his mercy, his compassion, and it should move our hearts to imitate him. In many ways, I think we need this devotion today where there is so much division and hatred and animosity. It's beautiful to to go before that image of the sacred heart and meditate on the love that the Father has poured out upon the world through his Son. And really, when you think about our mission, the mission of the church, it's to lead people to encounter that love, to know how much God loves us. And then our hearts are transformed. We have that famous, Jesus even speaks of his heart. He said in the Gospels, come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. Hmm. You know, that meekness, that humility of Jesus, he teaches us, and he invites us to learn, to imitate his love, to imitate his meekness, to imitate his humility. You know, there's that one invocation in the devotion to the Sacred Heart where we say, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, make my heart like unto thine. Where does that come from? The, That's from the, the devotion. Uh, it's, uh, that, I think, is from the litany of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Okay. Yeah, it's just one of the invocations. It's beautiful to pray the litany of the Sacred Heart. These are not just devos- relics of the past. I mean, I don't know how many Catholic homes have an image in our diocese, have an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, but it used to be very common Mm -hmm. that if you go into a Catholic home, I bet in the 1940s or 50s, you were most likely to see an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. There was the whole custom of the enthronement of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the the home. And that custom is still around. I just don't know that a lot of people know about it, but maybe some have had the image enthroned in their home. And devotion to the Sacred Heart is also intimately tied to the Eucharist because when you think about it, the Eucharist is the sacrament of love. You know, it flows out of his heart, you know, the, the, the blood that flowed from, from his pierced heart. Of course, here in our diocese, we have a, a basilica named of the, you know, of the Sacred Heart of Jesus sure. at Notre Dame. I'd say in some ways it's a, a whole synthesis of Catholic doctrine when we think about the, uh, the sacred heart of Jesus. Really a synthesis of everything we believe. Popes have had written a lot. Pope Pius XII wrote a very famous encyclical on the sacred heart. 
it's really, really beautiful, called Haurietis Aquas, which means fountains of water, I think. Remember, you shall draw waters with joy out of the Savior's fountain. Hmm. That's from the prophet Isaiah. And in that encyclical, Pope Pius XII looks about how the devotion to the Sacred Heart really has its foundations in the Old Testament and foreshadowings in the Old Testament. And then he looks at also how in the New Testament, well, he spends several pages on the Old Testament, then then the New Testament, and there we see God's love revealed in Christ, and he writes about the, the nature of Christ's love. Then he goes on to how this teaching continued in the fathers of the church, that the mystery of love is the foundation and culmination of the incarnation and of the redemption, you know, goes through Jesus's life, how he manifests divine and, and human love, this image of God's love for us, and then he goes on to and about the Holy Spirit, and he speaks about how we should adore the Sacred Heart as the symbol and source of love. So this wasn't something just new in the 17th century. It really grew out of devotion to the humanity of Christ. It reached that beautiful climax with St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, the Visitation Nun. But there were some saints before her, like St. Gertrude, and then saints afterwards as well, who had great devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And all the recent popes have written about the Sacred Heart and preached about the Sacred Heart. Well, I suppose the two different aspects to the devotion would be one to the theology and to reflect on what it means, and the other being the image itself that we can look at and, like you mentioned, enthroning it in our home. And for those that you know, want to get an image for their home. I, I guess the there's so many options to choose from of the different images, but the, the two different variations, I guess, would be Jesus with the, the heart kind of beaming from his chest. And it's a, a heart sometimes shaped like a the shape heart and sometimes like the organ heart or some kind of hybrid of the two with a crown of thorns and a flame and a cross, mm-hmm. sometimes a little wound in the side and sometimes a, a sword piercing it. Yeah. But... The crown of thorns yeah. is encircling the, the sacred heart. Rays of light come from it because, you know, the idea of Jesus' love radiating the light of, because Jesus is the light of the world. Sometimes it's depicted with arrows. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of makes me think of Cupid. But but certainly the, the flames are really important because it it's just kind of gets the idea of how much Jesus heart burns with love for us, Hmm. the flames. Give a little caution, though, about these images. There are, I mean, it's up to everybody, but some of them are very saccharine that I don't really think they're, they're not very inspiring to me. Hmm. There are some images are really beautiful, but others are, you know, not that, they're they're just kind of, I don't know. Not good art. I okay. Guess. A little more cheesy. Cheesy, yeah. kind of sentimentalistic, okay. I would say. So I would just be a little, you know, choose carefully the sure. image of the sacred art. Because I don't think it does justice to the beauty of the devotion when Jesus is, you know, portrayed, you know, real effeminate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that probably 
goes for art in general when we're talking about religious <laughs> art. But well, speaking of a heart with flames, I want to talk a little bit about the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And also, you've got a message for graduates, and we've got a bunch of listener submitted questions that are piling up. So we'll get to that coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Talked about the sacred heart of Jesus. And this is followed up liturgically with the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And these are often seen, uh, if you see one in a parish, there's probably a mirror of the, wherever that is, probably the opposite side of the church or, or whatever. There's probably the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So can you talk a little bit about the, the similarities and the differences between these yeah. two devotions? Well, the memorial of the Immaculate Heart of Mary is the day after, it's on Saturday, the day after, the, always the day after the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. But uh, it was a later devotion than the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, but it's, it's definitely related because the reason that we honor or venerate the heart of Mary is because her heart was intimately united to her son. Hmm. In other words, it united in love. You know, she shared in his love. She shared in his sufferings. So it's very fitting uh, after we show our love and adoration of the Sacred Heart of Jesus that we we also honor the most loving heart of his mother and with gratitude also. You know, some of the devotion grew up in parallel. As I said, it was back in the 17th century, St. John Eudes had devotion both to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. As a matter of fact, they would call it the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. Sometimes they didn't make a distinction. Huh. And actually, you see that still today. There's some reference to the Sacred Hearts. I kind of like the distinction, though, Sacred Heart of Jesus and Immaculate Heart of Mary. We know, for example, when Our Lady appeared to St. Catherine Labore in 1830 and gave her the miraculous medal, it has an uh, image of her heart. But there is a difference. Jesus' heart is, is divine. You know, he, full of love for mankind. And really, when you look at Mary's heart, it's, it's also her heart, her love for, for her son is represented there, her love for God. She's a model for us of love of God. And of course, her heart is immaculate. That means it's without sin. Mm-hmm. You know, the only fully human person who's able to, who who love God, perfectly. So, it's a, a beautiful devotion as well. It also uh, devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, mentioned with Saint Catherine Labore, of course, Our Lady of Fatima. You know, where she said, "My Immaculate Heart will triumph." So, devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary also kind of uh, grew after 1917 with the apparitions to the three children of Fatima. Traditionally, the heart of Mary in artwork is depicted with seven swords, seven wounds, representing her seven sorrows. Oftentimes, too, it will have, her heart will be kind of like a flower Mm -hmm. or flowers around her heart. Rather than the crown of thorns. Right, right, exactly. I think perhaps to represent her purity. Hmm. So yeah, it's so those are very, two very special days. The solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and then the memorial of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And remember, Simeon, the prophet, prophesied at the presentation that a sword of sorrow would pierce her heart. That's why 
we usually see a, a sword or seven swords in her heart mm -hmm. in artistic representations of it. So you mentioned the devotions to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and enthronement. Is there anything like that for the Immaculate Heart? No, not that I've heard okay. of. Not that I've heard of. I, I mean, the most, the closest thing would be, I think, maybe the Miraculous Medal. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, that's blessed, not enthroned. The Miraculous Medal has both on the back, right? Right. It has the M with the cross and right. then the Sacred Heart and Immaculate Heart underneath yeah, it. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's really tiny <laughs> if you have a little metal, but if you yeah. look closely. And I'm trying to think. I don't have a miraculous medal on now. I always wear the scapular. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'd have to look at it more closely. Yeah, yeah. And there's a a prayer or a, what would you call it for the miraculous medal for a, not just a blessing of it, but is is there a not, not for placing it when it's yeah. placed on you? Well, that's with the scapular where okay. you're kind of enrolled. Okay, because it's a Carmelite. It's a Carmelite enrollment. Uh -huh. There is a society or something of the miraculous medal, I think, that maybe there's an enrollment there too, but I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Well, I really enjoyed listening to your homily on May 17th. You talked about uh, graduation and you had a little special shout out to, I think it was your niece. Yeah. Um, but also, I think it was just a good challenge for all of us. So maybe we can get you to reflect a little bit on that. And if you have any questions, you can always go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We've got more coming up here with Bishop on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who had a great homily. If you're not watching, been live streaming the masses, I don't know how long that's going to continue. No, we're done. Okay. I finished on, um, what was it? Ascension. Okay. Yeah. Because I've been out in parishes doing sure. confirmation masses. Mm -hmm. People can go back and, and listen to them. Maybe you want to skip and make sure you catch the homilies. But you talked to graduates but I think it was a message for all of us about having, reminding us, it was reflecting on the gospel to always have a, a reason for our hope, uh, be able to explain our faith and, and kind of apologetics, but to always be ready for that. Not just sometimes, but always. So right. maybe you could reflect on that a little bit today. Yeah. And that actually came from the second reading. It's from uh, the first letter of St. Peter, chapter 3, verse 15 where St. Peter says, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. So I really did a, a reflection in that homily, and I was relating it to our graduates, our high school graduates, our college graduates, and then I kind of reflected a little bit about, especially with high school graduates, going forth, you know, praying that their faith would remain strong, and that I was kind of saying, I hope that in their Catholic high school experience, religion classes, and or if they're in religious education classes, that they learn their faith well, so that if they're sitting in a class where a professor is attacking religion or Christianity, especially Catholicism, which is favorite target today, uh -huh. that they could give the reasons for their hope. Right. Basically, you know, reasons for our hope are based on also their reasons for our faith. You know, mm -hmm. our hope is is Christ. Hope springs from faith. So 
you know, do we, have we really prepared our young people to be able to defend their faith, to give a good and articulate and intelligent explanation of our beliefs? That's really important because some parents or I get afraid, you know, are they going to lose their faith mm-hmm. when they go off to college, when they hear contrary ideas or have those who are atheists influencing mm-hmm. them or whatever, or other religions, mm-hmm. maybe not atheism, but religions other than Catholicism. So do they know their faith well enough? Are they able to explain it? So catechesis is really important. It's a really important. It's not just in our Catholic schools or really religious education classes, but especially in the home. That's why parents practicing the faith and living the faith, giving good witness to their children, all that is really important. And that parents, are they able to give a reason for their hope and be able to explain the faith to their children? Mm -hmm. And it's not just teaching them the truths of the faith, but living the faith. You know, there are, I know kids who, when they go off, sometimes will reject the faith because they're maybe rebelling or maybe they didn't, their parents didn't give good witness. Mm -hmm. So they're turned off. You know, just like we can, people can get turned off from the faith because of a particular priest or mm-hmm. bishop. Right. You know, so we all are called to to we're not perfect, but to do our best to give good witness of the gospel. Peter didn't say that we should now and then be able to give an <laughs> explanation of our faith. He says always. Yeah. He doesn't say sometimes. So I gave a whole list in that homily of. Uh, questions for people to think about. I said, are you able and ready to explain why you believe in Jesus Christ? Mm -hmm. Why you're his disciple? Are you able to explain to an atheist why it's reasonable to believe in God? Mm -hmm. Are you able to explain to a Muslim or a Jewish friend why you believe Jesus is God? Or why you believe God is a trinity of three divine persons? Can you talk about it? Got a couple episodes you can listen to about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Are you able to explain, let's say, to a Protestant friend why you believe that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus and has preserved the fullness of the apostolic faith? You know, I was asking all these questions in my homily. I said, are you able and ready to explain the importance of the seven sacraments, Mm -hmm. the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? If someone comes up and asks you, oh, why do you do this? Why do you go and adore what looks like a piece of bread, you know, can you explain why, you know, do you ever get asked, why do you confess your sins to a priest? Can you explain it? Or why we venerate the blessed Virgin Mary and the saints or why we believe in the authority of the Pope and the bishops or why we believe in the doctrine of purgatory. Are you able to explain and defend why the church teaches what it does about abortion and about euthanasia? what we believe about the dignity of the child in the womb or the dignity of migrants and refugees. Why marriage is a union between one man and one woman. Are you able to explain or why certain reproductive technologies like in vitro fertilization are harmful to human dignity? Right. Why sex should only be within marriage? Are are you, are you ready to explain why the option to follow Christ in the Catholic church is a good option, mm-hmm. something positive. You know, it's something that brings joy and human fulfillment. A yes to life and a yes to love, a path to true freedom. 
you know, are you able to articulate why you believe Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? And how this belief has given meaning and purpose to your life. These are things to think about. And I guess I kind of delved into that a bit because I'm thinking of our graduates, high school graduates going off to college. Are they prepared? And that list can be intimidating, especially you know, if, if you listen to this program and you're used to how Bishop answers questions about these things, or you know, listen to Catholic Answers and you hear people like Trent Horn or Jimmy Aiken and how they are able to defend the faith and answer things so, so well. Yeah. And we can be intimidated and say, like, that was a long list of things. I, I have, would have a hard time answering some of those questions, and I do have a hard time answering some of those questions whenever I'm challenged on them. What's our expectation for... I guess, uh, our ability to be able to defend the faith and to, to provide a reason for our hope? Well, I would say, you know, it should be something personal, too. You know, you can, everyone can share their personal faith. Okay. When we get to some things where it's kind of getting into doctrinal areas where one may does, maybe doesn't feel as equipped as they should, read the catechism. I mean, that has everything. Yeah. You know, even if it's just a few pages a day. If there was one or two particular questions that you, that I just said, and you thought, well, I have no idea how I would talk to somebody about that. Mm-hmm. Well, then just, yeah, work on those. Right. And there's so many good resources, but the catechism would be the fundamental thing. But you know what's also more important is the second half of that sentence from St. Peter, because it's not enough to give an explanation of the reasons for your hope. He says, but do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping your conscience clear. This is so important. Mm -hmm. When we're explaining the faith or giving an explanation for our hope, the reason for our hope, we always must do it in a way that is loving. You know, I can't emphasize this enough because a lot of harm, and this, I'm not exaggerating, a lot of harm is done by Catholics who claim to be orthodox or even super orthodox Mm -hmm. in their faith, but turn people off, turn people away Mm -hmm. from Catholicism because of self-righteousness, anger, Mm -hmm. judgmentalism, pride. We can't be, we must not be modern day Pharisees. If we're not proclaiming the truth in charity, and that's the name of this program, right. your motto, we're, we're not real, really orthodox because we're not proclaiming the truth. Because love is central to the truth of Christianity and Catholicism. If we don't treat others with love and respect, and I, that includes atheists, then we're off the mark. Mm-hmm. That's why Peter says, with gentleness and reverence. Okay. And it's not about winning arguments. Sometimes we think, oh, I, you know, I have to win an argument. You know, that kind of mindset, you know, if it's, if it's really good apologetics, you're not argumentative. You're not polemical. It's not trying to pick a fight with somebody. Yeah, there might be some argument. Yeah, there might be, you know, a debate. Sure. But that debate should not degenerate into attacks on people. Right. Or a lack of respect for those who disagree with us. Because what's the purpose of it? The purpose of this isn't to win a debate, win an argument. It's to win souls for Christ, mm-hmm. you know, to bring them to the peace 
that's found in Christ and the joy that's found in Christ and his body, the church. You know, when I see some of our college students when they're back home, mm-hmm. I'll ask them, how's it going and all that. And then I'll usually get around to asking them about their faith life, uh-huh. you know, and kind of get an idea of whether they're going to mass and that. <laughs> well, some will share with me and I'll say, oh, what's, what's challenging about living your Catholic faith at, at college? And some will share with me that, well, sometimes it's, they have trouble. It's a little hard finding good relationships, good friendships. If the if the culture of the campus is like a hookup culture or everything centered around alcohol or mm-hmm. whatever, that can be difficult. And some will say, though, that they also have a challenge in some of their classes because they might be the only practicing Catholic, hmm. or there might just be a few of them, and they might have a professor or a fellow student putting down Catholicism or putting down Christianity for that matter, or, or some teaching of the Catholic faith. And they struggle. Like, should I, you know, some will say, yeah, I, I speak out. Right. And I'm really proud when they say that they say it's hard sure, because they get attacked by their other, other students. And then some will tell me that they, they feel support because they've made some good friends through Catholic campus ministry. If they're involved in the Newman center or whatever, But a lot of them tell me when they get challenged or when they get questions about the faith, they will study and and they'll go on computer or whatever to look up answers. And they'll tell me they've they've grown in their faith, their knowledge of the faith, because being challenged, that's led them to delve more deeply into it. And that's good news. You know, sometimes when our faith is ridiculed or challenged or attacked, it can become deeper because then it's making us think about it more and studying it more and hopefully praying more too. I almost think of like a workout or sports or something like that. When you're faced with a challenge, you can either get better and, and let that challenge you know, develop you into, and make you stronger, or you can give up and become weaker. Exactly. And the same thing with our faith. If we dive into that and do our research and learn, we're going to become stronger in our faith. Or what you see a lot of people when they're faced with a question they don't understand, give up and then become weaker in their faith. Right, right. Or they just get challenged by someone who, uh, and if their faith is weak to begin with, they could be sometimes proselytized by somebody and and lose their faith or decide, oh, I'm going to leave the Catholic Church and become a Baptist or I'm going to leave altogether or, mm-hmm. you know, become an agnostic or something. So we need that firm foundation. Yeah. And that's where parents are really important. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, where you can also find past episodes of the show, which if you have questions about different things, there's a whole library of questions that Bishop's answered to kind of help you through some of these different things. You can also text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598, and Bishop will respond to your questions, including why don't we welcome people into the church at Pentecost instead of Easter? and what we should keep in a devotional space and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. 
Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to respond to. Our first question comes from Father Dave Vores from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish. With the pandemic and welcoming new Catholics at the Pentecost Vigil Mass, the question was asked, why do we welcome people into the faith at Easter when it was Pentecost that the thousands were baptized and welcomed into the faith? The readings of Pentecost also seem to reflect this as a main theme. Thanks. God bless. Well, that's a good question. You know, this year we did receive people into the church at Pentecost because we were all in, we didn't have public liturgies at Easter, but normally it's the Easter vigil uh-huh. because, uh, and that goes back to the early church. Okay. Um, it was always at the Easter vigil. The resurrection of Jesus is the crowning truth of our faith in Christ, major part of the Paschal mystery, and it's really the greatest feast in the whole liturgical year. Mm-hmm. So that's the day when we have people baptized. Now, it's true on Pentecost Sunday, thousands were baptized. I think it said 3,000 in Acts right. of the Apostles. But the and really what Pentecost was, was the manifestation of the church to the world. That was the beginning of, of the church's mission, because at that point, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. But really, when we're baptized and confirmed and receive Holy Communion, the sacraments of initiation, that's intimately connected to the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ hmm. that we celebrate at the at the Easter Vigil mm-hmm. because we are baptized uh, into Christ's death and rise with him to new life. So that's why that's the more appropriate solemnity or feast sure. for the celebration of baptism. Makes sense. All right. Now the listener asked... What are some items one should keep in a devotional space at home? Well, everyone, you're kind of free. I, I definitely think a Bible okay. uh, and candles, a crucifix, and maybe so, I would say some images, whether they're statues or little pictures of, you know, favorite saints. You know, people have different home altars. I think a lot of people did this during the time when our churches were where we didn't have public liturgies, they set up home altars. Those, I think, would be the standard things to have in a devotional space at home. Is there a difference between having these things placed around your home? I mean, most of us have those things that you mentioned. We have some candles. We have a Bible. We have a crucifix. They might not all be in one little place together as an altar. Is it important for us to have a, a devotional space versus a devotional home? I, I, I think either, but okay. I, I do think, you know, it is a nice custom to have a, a particular devotional space. And I would say if you have a lot of religious images around the home, that's fine. But maybe where you have your Bible, okay. I think, would be probably, you know, with some candles and maybe a statue. is kind of like maybe one little focal point okay. for prayer. Just a recommendation, sure. not a requirement. Okay, good. <laughs> Uh, Perhaps inspired by your recent mention of our retired priests, someone asked, what do retired priests do? Does the diocese support them or do they support themselves? Do they still live in rectories with other priests? Well, our retired priests certainly pray for our people. What they do really depends on their health. Okay. You know, some aren't able to get around, you know, some Mm -hmm. are still quite 
mobile and healthy. So it's up to them. They're retired, how much they want to do as far as ministry is concerned. A lot of times they're happy to help out with masses or confessions or doing spiritual direction. Yes, once they're retired, the diocese supports them. We have a retirement plan for the priests, so they all receive a, a pension. Okay. So they don't have to support themselves. <laughs> you know, they have a pension. Do they live in rectories? Some do. It, they can live wherever they want. It's up to them. We have some suites at uh, St. Anne's Home Retirement Community in Fort Wayne and also a few priests at Holy Cross Village up at, uh, at Notre Dame at Holy Cross College. So they can live where they want. A couple have their own apartments where they live after they retire. So yeah, hopefully that answers that question. All right. Another listener asked, what is the Pope's process for choosing which priests will become bishops and where they will go? Okay, there's a congregation for bishops in Rome. One of the Vatican congregations that assists the Pope is in charge of this. And the process involves the Pope's representative in each country, and it's called the Apostolic Nuncio, mm-hmm. the Pope's representative in the United States. He kind of guides the process, so when there is an opening, he would do a confidential consultation of, of priests of a diocese, of neighboring bishops, lay people, all very confidential questionnaires. They can suggest candidates for the episcopacy, looking at the particular qualities of certain priests, also the needs of a particular diocese. And as they go through all of that process, the nuncio then would send uh, the top three names to the Congregation for Bishops in Rome. Then they would study it and see you know, their opinion and they would follow they would then send their recommendation to the pope who makes the final decision any step of the way i mean the pope doesn't have to follow what the recommendation is he could send it back and say no i'm not happy with any of these i want mm-hmm. you to start over again but it's it's all a very confidential process so that there's no politicking for example when i was being considered i had no idea i was being considered when I became Bishop of Harrisburg, I had no idea that I was being considered to be Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend. So the person being considered doesn't even know he's being considered. Huh. Yeah. So the three different scenarios I could imagine would be a priest from that diocese being named Bishop, uh, a Bishop from another diocese being transferred or a priest from another diocese being made Bishop. Right. Is one of those more common than others? Yeah, I mean, in my case, I became a bishop of my home diocese. I don't think that's very common. Okay. I mean, it happens sometimes, but... Yeah, you actually have done two of those. Right, yeah. (laughs) You became a bishop of your own diocese, and then you became a bishop that was transferred to another diocese. Right, right. So I had both experiences. But any of those scenarios could work. Okay. And uh, transfer of a bishop, like happened to me, priest coming to another diocese. For example, the new bishop of Gary... He was a priest in Detroit Archdiocese, so he wasn't a bishop yet. Mm-hmm. So that was the situation of being uh, Bishop McClory was a priest in Detroit, and and he was made bishop of Gary, so he was ordained a bishop in Gary. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I came here, I was already a bishop, mm-hmm. so I was only installed. I wasn't ordained right. when I came. But then if you look at the Archbishop of Indianapolis... Archbishop Thompson, he was already Bishop of Evansville. And prior to that, though, he was a priest of the Archdiocese of Louisville. Is 
is that more typical for an archdiocese that they would take a bishop and and bring them in? They yeah, already have experience. They're usually bigger. Yeah, yeah, they're usually bigger. Archdiocese are usually larger. Uh, I mean, it's not required, but uh-huh. I think it's more common that they're already bishops right. before they become archbishops. I'm trying to think if I can think of any recent one who wasn't uh, a bishop before becoming an archbishop. No one comes to mind at the mm. top of my head, but it does happen. Sure. All right. Well, our last question. Do you enjoy fishing or hunting? No. <laughs> Sorry. I should. I mean, I might enjoy fishing if I tried, if I went. I don't know. I, I did. You know, I remember fishing a few times as a kid, uh-huh. but I really haven't as ever as an adult, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Is it the patience? Is it the act of... Probably the patience. I'm very active. an animal or... No, no. It'd be more, I think, you know, I'm very active. So uh-huh. I'm not sure. Like that never was something that I was drawn to do. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you 100%. Yeah. Like, yeah. Sitting yeah. still and waiting for an animal to right. eat something. Yeah. Isn't or a fish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. 